What's your favorite way to learn? I like graphic novels because I can see who's talking. My grandma reads the newspaper to me. I like movies on TV. I play learning games on my dad's tablet. I like reading plain old regular books with lots of detail. This is Worlds Awaiting, helping children read, write, see, speak, think, and listen. Here's our host, Rachel Wadham. I'm Rachel Wadham, and welcome to Worlds Awaiting, helping children and parents explore the world of literacy. Today, we'll be exploring the worlds of disability advocacy, historical fiction, and scientific literacy. Our first guest is debut author Amy Webb, and we'll discuss disability advocacy. Next, we'll talk with author Lauren Tarshish about her book series, I Survived. Finally, we'll chat with Dwayne Merrill, a science teacher about scientific literacy. Before we leave you, I'll step around the librarian's table with librarians from around Utah to talk about children, books, and life at the library. Along with our interviews, we'll listen to an excerpt of Alice in Wonderland and hear from the host of Thinking Aloud. But before all that, let's take a glimpse into my world. Rachel's world. Today at Rachel's World, I'd like to tell you about expository text. What is expository text, you may ask? Well, let's start by saying that the purpose of expository text is to explain something or give information. So this kind of text is designed to teach someone something. Newspapers and magazines are great examples of expository text we often encounter. Additionally, many of you may have used a textbook at one time or another, which is also another clear example of expository text. Because many do equate expository text with dry, dull textbooks, some people react to expository text with disdain. However, just because a text is expository does not mean that it has to take all the fun out of learning. And the very best authors of expository nonfiction for children are aptly able to convey their love of the world to readers. One of my all-time favorite authors of expository nonfiction for kids is Gail Gibbons. Writing on a wide range of topics from tornadoes to ladybugs, all of her books encourage readers with bold illustrations and lots of factual information. But good authors of expository nonfiction don't just keep their readers engaged, they also construct their text to support the reader as they read. One publisher of a number of excellent expository texts for kids that uses support elements is DK. In their books, like the first dinosaur encyclopedia, they use headings to organize the large amounts of dinosaur information as they compare and contrast the meat eaters and the plant eaters. For the inquisitive dinosaur fanatic, a book like this is just the thing, but it doesn't have to be about dinosaurs. There are all kinds of things out there that the kids are interested in. And here at Rachel's World, we think that a great expository text may be just the ticket for learning more about the things kids love. Rachel's World. The world is full of amazing children with amazing talents and abilities. Some of them have differences, however, and sometimes it is difficult for us as parents and caregivers to talk to our children about these kinds of differences. Today, we're on the phone with Amy Webb, who is a mother of a child with a disability and an advocate to help us as parents and other children understand the context of disabilities through her experiences. Welcome, Amy. Thank you. Thank you for having me. 
We are so excited to have you here today. I love that you are so passionate and such an advocate, not only for your sweet daughter, but also for all children with disabilities and helping the world get a a deeper understanding, um, particularly our children out there, of of how we can can interact and and be better people in, in accepting and enjoying all of the differences that we have. So to start with this morning, tell us a little bit um, about what what is the context of your passion? You write books and you also blog. Why do you think that you wanted to get the word out and get your own personal experience out there as a mother to help share and shape the experiences of others? Um, that's a great question. You know, it, for, for me at the beginning, it just started as a way of processing my own feelings. Um, I had been blogging before my daughter was born. We found out when I was pregnant with her that, I, that she was going to have um, a dis- you know, physical disability, so she has limb differences. Um, all four of her limbs are affected. She doesn't have most of her left arm, for example. She doesn't have typical hands. Um, she has a small right hand. She uses a wheelchair. Uh, she does all her fine motor skill work with her feet. Um, and so it was, it was a big thing to process. And at first, it was just me writing it out, one, just to get information to friends and family, you know, so I'm not telling the same story a hundred times. And then it just was cathartic, and it just became, um, you know, I was having this very different parenting experience than anyone else I knew. And then, you know, and I, I had an older daughter as well, so very different from, from that. And I think I, I just wanted people to know what this looked like. Um, and I, I wanted to share it for myself and for my own, you know, experience. And so it was about a year after she was born that I had the idea to start interviewing other special needs families. Um, I knew how important it had been to have this platform. I mean, uh, you know, writing. I mean, <laughs> the the beautiful therapeutic, you know, you know, writing is just such a wonderful gift to all of us. Um, who can do that, and, and I just knew how much it had done for me. And so I, I told my husband, I said, I think I'm going to do this, this thing in my blog, like where I interview other people, you know, other, other families with disabilities, like every Friday. And he was like, every Friday? That's a lot. <laughs> he, not that he wasn't supportive, but he was sort of like, mm. And I was like, well, I just, I just want to see it. I just feel like it was really important to me. And, um, you know, little did I know that that would just become – I don't know. I mean, I just, it, just the basis for everything. And just, it was a whole new uh, world I was opening up to myself um, and, to, and to readers as well. But really, I, I strongly felt like if, if no one else read these but me, it was worth it. And it was so important. And so I started with um, just interviewing special needs families. And, you know, because at first I was mostly interested in hearing from the parents. Um, people going through the situation that I was going through is, of, you know, this unexpected journey that, you know, most of us didn't sign up for. Um, And at first I really came at it from this perspective of like, okay, this is our journey. We're going to show all you, you know, all you non-special needs families, like, you know, we're going to give you a little peek inside our lives. I kind of, I mean, I kind of had that attitude of like, these are my people and I know what's up. And I really quickly realized, oh, I don't know anything. Like, I'm just, one person coming from one standpoint, I don't know anything, Amy, just shut up and listen. And then I also started um, getting 
uh, interviews, you know, adults with disabilities. I remember the first adult with a disability who reached out and said, hey, would you be interested in, in sharing a firsthand perspective? And I feel like that's when things really started to click and shift for me. Um, and, and seeing my daughter's world from, you, you know, because when, when we're parents in general, I mean, we are our kids' hands and eyes and ears, regardless if they have special needs or not, right, when they're yeah. babies. And particularly when you are a special needs parent, you are their advocate. I mean, you, you're taking on this role in a very personal way. Um, but as, as they get older and as they grow um, and, we, you know, that distance grows, for some, for some special needs families it doesn't grow as much if you have, you know, a, a child that needs round-the-clock care. So it's different for everyone. But um, I started to realize, like, oh, I need, I need to see this from her point of view, not so much from my point of view. And I just, and I just started to fall in love with, like, um, <laughs> it sounds weird, but, like, all things disability. It, just, it was just seeing the world through this entirely new lens. It was an understanding of, like, oh, the world isn't necessarily what I thought it was. It was, you know, it was learning about this whole new um, uh, set of rules that I didn't realize up, that I was applying to people, my, you know, prejudices that I had no idea existed so significantly within myself and other people and society as a whole. So I really felt like it, it was just this, it became this enormous education the more I interviewed other people. And, and so now, I mean, it's been, I've been doing that spotlight for, I think, eight years now. My daughter will be nine this summer. And I have over 225 interviews um, it, that it, I've done. And, and it's like a master's degree, I feel like. It's, it, was, it certainly it's just, is. <laughs> yeah. It's just an, it was an education, and it's still ongoing. And I've just learned so much, and I feel so honored that people ever share their stories. And it just and it became like the bedrock of my blog. I mean, I blog about lots of things, and you know, do stuff with uh, brands and, and things. But I think um, really that you know that became what people came to, came to my blog for was to to learn with me about about people and families who have these really unique perspectives on life. It is wonderful that you're using your talents to share this gift with the world and to help us see deeper in this understanding. I, I know that it is impossible to generalize, but could you maybe talk to one or two points that you, you feel like are those kind of general points that all of us should kind of understand from, from your master's degree in, in blogging <laughs> about disabilities. What, what are two things that you think stand out that particularly for us as parents um, and caregivers of children that we need to know to help our children particularly interact with others that have disabilities? Sure. Um, the first thing that stands out is uh, this thing that I say, which is that every single human being is a gamble and we love them anyway. And what I mean by that is, you know, I look back at my daughter's ultrasound appointment and it was, it was a really bad day. It was the day that, you know, a doctor came in and told us that, you know, no, everything's not right. And while, you know, her heart and spine and lungs and brain look fine, it's her limbs, they're all misshapen, deformed, or missing bones altogether. And it was just this gut punch of, of fear and um, and 
I look back now and I and I've kind of like rescripted this in my head like well if that ultrasound machine was su- really accurate it, you know it might have gone something like this like the doctor coming in and be like wow you're, it looks like your daughter is going to have a wicked sense of humor. She's going to be super bright and funny. She's going to keep you on your toes, and she's hilarious. Um, oh, and also she's got some limb differences. And and us being like, oh, should we be worried about that? And the doctor would be like, oh gosh, no. With everything else she's got going on, you guys are lucky. Like I've, you know, I just had to diagnose a kid today who's like a huge jerk or something. <laughs> and just the realization that like how many people go on to have these, you know, really healthy pregnancies and everything comes up fine on on an ultrasound, but then like the, you know, maybe the kid grows up and they're. Um, you know, they're really terrible people or they're liars or they, they have, you know, just, just that they have problems that you can't see on there. And I, and it was that realization of like, um, you know, we go into it and in it being parenthood with absolutely no say in who these people are. And I think we think a little bit because, you know, I'm me and my partner's my partner. They're going to be kind of like us. But I think all of us parents know they come with their own agendas, their own, um, their own personalities and likes and dislikes and abilities and disabilities and and you and the magic of it all is that you love them anyway. I mean, mm-hmm. parents, we just love parents anyway. And so I think just that realization of seeing the humanity in everyone and um, you know, I've I've talked to parents. I mean, I've interviewed parents whose kids, you know, can't speak, are 100% de- dependent on them, can't do anything on their own. And they talk about their personality or the, them being the light of their lives. And I, you know, and I, and I think sometimes we don't realize how much um, our love is not dependent on who our children are. It's, I think it's just we love them because they're ours. That's and, so beautiful. <laughs> that, that's such a beautiful yeah, way to put it. I love it. Our job, just a little bit right as a parent, which is taking care of them, um, I think it's like, you know, as we often say in the church, you know, you love those you serve. And I think, to me, I've learned that our ability to love is greater than we sometimes think. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I think if we do our job a little bit right as a parent, you're going to love them. And it and it's not based on these external factors. So that's sort of one idea. Well, and it's a great way for us as parents and other people to look at it too, right? You know, this person is loved. Right. This person has love and is loved yeah. by foundational people in their lives. So why can't I love them at the same time? Right. Having that kind of perspective. Yeah. And just that intrinsic value that they bring to the world um, where they're not, they don't, they're not proving themselves. Um, They don't, I mean, I don't mean to say that like all people with disabilities, you know, don't have to prove themselves. There's not a blanket statement, but, but that when you take some of those more extreme examples of like, um, you know, that, maybe the child or that person who, who really is 100% dependent on, on a parent or caregiver and you're not getting what, you know, typical parents get back, which is thank yous and I love yous or, you know, affection or any, you know, almost anything, but that, that there is that intrinsic value that is just there in humanity. Yeah, and it just, so beautiful. It just is. Yeah. You know, um, Amy, I, I would say that, yeah, no, sorry. sorry yeah. yeah. Amy, as, as, um, as we're kind of closing up our conversation today, I would like you to speak to maybe the, the one thing that we as parents 
could do better, particularly when helping our children interact with a child with a disability. So, so what is that one thing that we should probably keep in mind as we're helping and coaching our children as they come across these differences, particularly those ones that are very visible and, and a little strange and, and in all honesty, some, for some children, maybe a little frightening? How, how can we as parents help navigate those waters for our kids? I think the best thing you can do is um, to uh, to do it ahead of time, um, whether it's with a book, whether I've had a lot of people use my blog as a tool to sit down with their kids because there's pictures of all these different, you know, abilities and people. And I think just having those conversations about disability and the way that people look in the world is, is a really great thing when they can do it away from, you know, before you're in a situation where your child is just reacting on pure reaction, um, showing them videos, you know, positive things. And I think just the second thing is um, if you can model how to treat people, which is to say that you treat them like, like the human that they are, um, then you know, and, and by that, what I mean is like um, a lot of times I know that sometimes if we see someone with a disability or special need and we think, oh, gosh, can they understand me? And maybe we talk to the caregiver before we talk to them or um, or even if we know that 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 isn't a person that can communicate. Typically, we ignore them altogether. Um, I've learned through a lot of these interviews that that that's really hurtful to families um, and that, you know, a lot of times someone's ability to speak or um, isn't in line with their ability to understand what's going on. And so you, I think you just always have to treat them the way that you treat anyone else and to model that for our children and to show um, that we're not, you know, we're not afraid that we, um, that we can build friendships and, and we speak to them and we treat them with kindness and respect like we would anyone else. Such beautiful advice to help us to be just more kind and more human and more loving. And I think that foundationally what we need to be in a lot of different situations. Thank you so much, Amy, for sharing your passions with us. Thank you for having me. Amy Webb is the debut author of When Charlie Met Emma. Next, we have story time with Reed Wolfley reading an excerpt from Lewis Carroll's Alice in Wonderland. The first thing I've got to do, said Alice to herself as she wandered about in the wood, is to grow to my right size again. And the second thing is to find my way into that lovely garden. I suppose I ought to eat or drink something or other, but the great question is what? Alice looked all around her at the flowers and the blades of grass, but she could not see anything that looked like the right thing to eat or drink under the circumstances. There was a large mushroom growing near her, about the same height as herself. She stretched herself up on tiptoe and peeped over the edge, and her eyes immediately met those of a large blue caterpillar that was sitting on the top with its arms folded, quietly smoking a long hookah and taking not the smallest notice of her or anything else. At last, the caterpillar took the hookah out of its mouth and addressed Alice in a languid, sleepy voice. "'Who are you?' said the caterpillar. Alice replied rather shyly, "'I I hardly know, sir, just at present. "'At least I know who I was when I got up this morning, "'but I think I must have changed several times since then. "'What do you mean by that?' said the caterpillar sternly. "'Explain yourself.' "'I can't explain myself, I'm afraid, sir,' said Alice.' 
because I'm not myself. You see, being so many different sizes in a day is very confusing. She drew herself up and said very gravely, I think you ought to tell me who you are first. Why? said the caterpillar, as Alice could not think of a very good reason, and the caterpillar seemed to be in a very unpleasant state of mind, she turned away. Come back, the caterpillar called after her. I've something important to say. Alice turned and came back again. Keep your temper, said the caterpillar. Is that all, said Alice, swallowing down her anger as well as she could. No, said the caterpillar. It unfolded its arms, took the hookah out of its mouth again, and said, So, you think you're changed, do you? I'm afraid I am, sir, said Alice. I can't remember things as I used, and I don't keep the same size for ten minutes together. What size do you want to be? asked the caterpillar. Oh, I'm not particular as to size, Alice hastily replied. Only one doesn't like changing so often, you know. I should like to be a little larger, sir, if you wouldn't mind, said Alice. Three inches is such a wretched height to be. It is a very good height indeed, said the caterpillar angrily, rearing itself upright as it spoke. It was exactly three inches high. In a minute or two, the caterpillar got down off the mushroom and crawled away into the grass, merely remarking as it went, one side will make you grow taller, and the other side will make you grow shorter. One side of what? The other side of what? thought Alice to herself. Of the mushroom, said the caterpillar, just as if she had asked it aloud, and in another moment it was out of sight. Alice remained looking thoughtfully at the mushroom for a minute, trying to make out which were the two sides of it. At last she stretched her arms round it as far as they would go and broke off a bit with the edge of each hand. And now which is which? She said to herself and nibbled a little of the right hand bit to try the effect. The next moment she felt a violent blow underneath her chin. It had struck her foot. She was a good deal frightened by this very sudden change and as she was shrinking rapidly, so she set to work at once to eat some of the other bit. Her chin was pressed so closely against her foot that there was hardly room to open her mouth. But she did it at last and managed to swallow a morsel of the left-hand bit. Come, my head's free at last, said Alice. But all she could see when she looked down was an immense length of neck, which seemed to rise like a stalk out of a sea of green leaves that lay far below her. Where have my shoulders got to? Oh, my poor hands, how is it I can't see you? She was delighted to find that her neck would bend about easily in any direction, like a serpent. She had just succeeded in curving it down into a graceful zigzag and was going to dive in among the leaves when a sharp hiss made her draw back in a hurry. A large pigeon had flown into her face and was beating her violently with its wings. can be an incredible tool for teaching children about the world around them. Even the simplest of stories can teach children about history and help them learn different virtues like compassion and resilience. Today, we have author Lauren Tarshis on the phone, whose books do just that. Welcome, Lauren. Thank you, Rachel. 
Lauren, this is such a wonderful opportunity for us to be able to introduce you to our listening audience. You particularly write one amazing series called I Survived. So to start out, tell us a little bit about that series. Sure. So um, I have I have written, currently there are 18 I Survived books that I've written. Um, each one takes an important event in history, sort of an iconic historical event like the American Revolution, most recently the Battle of, of, um, the Battle of D-Day, everything from the Titanic to the eruption of Mount Vesuvius and the destruction of Pompeii to the San Francisco earthquake, the Chicago fire. So I take these, I take these important events I do an enormous amount of research. I will you know, go. To, I always go to the place that I'm writing about. I work with historians or scientists if it's a natural disaster, like the tsunami in Japan. I will go to museums. I will study maps and primary documents. So I'll do everything that I need to do to completely immerse myself and understand the event. And then I create a fictional character that's the age of my readers, 11 years old. I mean, that's really part of my target audience is kids between maybe the ages of 9 and 13. So I create a fictional character who's inspired by real people that I encounter in my research, and I put that child into the middle of the event. So I create a fictional story that sort of propels the reader through the event. And the idea is to um, showcase values like resilience um, and inner strength and connection with our communities and our families um, to tell an engaging story and to take kids who really, most of my readers are not, quote, readers, unquote. These are not kids who are, you know, reading under the covers every single night. I'm so pleased that I have large numbers of readers who are kids who claim to not like to read, and yet they're fascinated by these stories. Um, and my goal is not only to grab their attention and take them through the story, but my hope is that by the end they're also going to want to learn on, more on their own, share their stories with, my, with their families. Um, so it's really been a very joyful journey for me as an author. Well, and a joyful journey for your readers, too. As a librarian, one of the things that I really appreciate about this series that you kind of mentioned is the fact that you really are trying to promote some values here, courage, resilience, all of these Mm -hmm. types of things. In your newest Mm -hmm. book, which is based around D-Day, there is one that your main character that you center around it witnesses D-Day and some of the events going around that and, and seeing the soldiers and the destruction that's going on. And I love that you bring in that sense of resilience and courage. Is that something that you want to structure your books around? Do you look for specific events that can help promote those kinds of values? Or do they just naturally come as, as part of your research? That's such a great question. I mean, I think I, I once got a letter from a little boy who said, Dear Mrs. Tarshish, why do you write about events that are so depressing, D-U-P-R-E-S-S-I-N-T? <laughs> and I really thought about that, and I wrote him back this long note I remember, and I said, you know, what's happened to me is as I'm researching these events, whether it's the Holocaust or, um, you know, I write about natural disasters, including recent ones, like in Joplin, Missouri in 2011, which was, you know, hit by this terrible um, tornado, um, I read, I meet people, I read about them, people who have faced our most unimaginable fears, really, um, losses that are just overwhelming. My own mother-in-law um, lost much of her family in the Holocaust and lived with me for 10 years. And I was, what I was struck by, you know, in the real people I meet in my research, is that people can go through these events and they can heal. 
with the help of their families, with their faith, with their communities. And so I wrote to this young man that somehow I've become a more hopeful person after writing about these depressing events because I've seen and heard, made friends with, um, over many years, um, people who... um, who showcase this. I mean, it, it is really, again, back to resilience, that we can go through very challenging times. Healing is not a quick process very often. You know, it is a process. But people can go on and lead lives that are rich and um, happy, even after suffering from things that are so um, dark. So insightful. And I l- really appreciate that your books bring this to the fore. The other thing that I l- really appreciate about your books is the fact that they s- are seen through the eyes of 11-year-olds. I think oftentimes when we look at history or history books, the kids are left out. And there were so many right. of these kids that did important things. So <laughs> why is that passion for you, telling it through the eyes of a, of a young person instead of, you know, maybe telling it through the eyes of a soldier or who was on the beach at D-Day. What, what does that provide for you as an author? Well, I think, I think all of us, I mean, I, I, I think, you know, I'm speaking for myself, but I think it's fairly universal that, that we want to feel connected to stories. And so I think that as much as I can, try, I, you know, I, I, I feel I always enjoy reading about people like myself, <laughs> you know, even if it's a person who is in a faraway place, even if it's a fantasy world, even if it's someone a long time ago in history, to imagine, I think we all wonder what would I, you know, what would it be like? So I think as much as you can try to um, show an event through the, through the eyes of, I mean, actually, I'll go back, Rachel, and tell you that one of the inspirations of the series was one of my sons. I have four children. One of them was just a, a, you know, did not like to read, just refused very politely. No, thank you, would not read. So finally, one day, I really asked him, I said, what kind of books would you really, do you want to read? And he said, very clearly, I want to read about really interesting things, and I want there to be suspense, but his most important his most important request was when he said, I want to read a book where the main character is a boy like me. Yay. And I think we're, so that was really the, you know, that was part of the impetus. Of course, I have girl characters now, um, 18 books later, but I keep, I don't forget that um, anytime I'm, so not only am I looking to have characters that are, that are relatable to my, to my readers, I'm always looking for details. I mean, you want to, if it's even in the D-Day book, one of the big important objects in this story, which is based on a real object, is his soccer ball. He was a soccer fanatic in, you know, in France. Um, his, he, he loved his favorite soccer players, just like kids today love Steph Curry or LeBron James. So again, showing that the universality of the human experience through history, even to children without you know, overtly saying that, you know, showing them, hey, this is a kid like you. He loves cookies. He's going into town when the story opens to bring to try to to sell his soccer ball at a at a black market, you know, Riverside Market to get a little bit of money to bring his mom her, his mom a birthday present, some of her favorite cookies at the bakery that they can no longer afford. That whole book just has so many touching scenes like this. This young man really stepping up to do things for his family and his community in, in amongst the most horrific times that he is experiencing. That juxtaposition of the beauty of the young man and his choices and the horrendousness of the situation he is in, I think is one of the things that I really love about your work is that you're able to balance that, that really sad stuff with some really happy, courageous stuff that goes oh, on with the books. You. 
Yeah. Thank you for saying that, Rachel. That's really, you know, um, the books are very challenging to write. They're, they are very, very challenging. I go through so many drafts, and um, so to hear that is, is very, makes me very happy because, um, you know, I think that um, I want the stories to mean something to, to, to kids and to their families, and um, it, it is, you know, I feel very privileged to be able to be doing it. Well, I can attest to that fact that you definitely have readers out there who love them. I have had those in my life and in the work that I do have really engaged with your series in a fundamental way that I think some other readers may not. So at the very basis of that, thank you for some great stories. Thank you, Rachel. Lauren Tarshish is the author of the I Survived series. Next, you've heard Marcus Smith on his show, Thinking Aloud, but now we get the chance to pick his brain about his favorite books. Our student producer, Sarah Byington, sat down with Marcus. Let's take a listen. What was your favorite book to read when you were a kid? Hard to say the most favorite, but I have fond memories of a little green book called The Wonderful Journey or The Wonderful Flight to the Mushroom Planet. And I hadn't thought about this book for years, but I, I recently was online and I just plugged in the title, Mushroom Planet, and up comes this title from 1954 with the same cover. And it's a little bit of sci-fi, but it's very light sci-fi, sci-fi for kids. It's one of those scholastic books. And so this was intended for maybe readers from maybe third to sixth grade. And my imagination just ran wild with that. I remember drawing pictures uh, endless pictures, reams of paper of aliens and planets with mushrooms on them. And my own, I, I took that story and ran with it where I wanted to go rather than really even caring about the story because there weren't too many pictures in the book. It was just that cover that caught my attention. That was certainly one of my favorites. Of course, the Narnia series was big for me. I, I stuck in the realm of magic and fantasy when I was a kid for some time. Uh, I didn't really pursue it beyond uh, a couple of titles because I was diverted quite early to the idea that, that nonfiction was it for me. And we had the World Book Encyclopedia at home, and that, and, and that World Book Encyclopedia set at home became my literary home. And every day I was poring over its pages. So why do you think you were drawn to the nonfiction? There must have come a time when I thought that I wanted to understand the world as it was more than the world that people were imagining. And the very idea of an encyclopedia was fascinating to me because it seemed to imply that all the knowledge in the world could be cataloged and accumulated and then bound together. And very early on, when I had my experience with a world book, I, I assumed that it was comprehensive, that everything <laughs> could be known and was known and was, in, was contained therein. And uh, I, would, I would go through uh, different categories. I remember uh, taking maybe six months and just looking at all the animals. Collecting, let's go to the bird section. Let's go to the mammal section. And let's go to the reptile section. I also remember being just mesmerized by the transparent plates of human anatomy where you could see first the skin and then the muscles and work your way down to the organs and the bones and and being mesmerized and horrified all at the same time. But for me, it really was the idea that books would somehow be a, a portal of access to information that I was supposed to know somehow or at least that I could 
could get to and and read about. It was it was a world of uh, exploring uh, the the realities of the place I was going to spend the rest of my life. This world, after all, it's called the World Book. If you were to recommend a book to a child, what would you recommend? I'm still very, very fond of the Narnia series, but I have to say, uh, a couple of years ago, I prevailed upon my wife to agree with me that we should, in our family, have a book that I had when I was a kid called The Big Jump. Long out of print, uh, maybe not uh, as well known by any means as, say, Dr. Seuss or somebody like that, but The Big Jump was just right for me. This is a book for maybe somebody ages four, five, six, and illustrated. And there's a king and a little boy, and the king is benevolent, but there's also a wicked king. And this little boy is able to perform remarkable feats with the help of of the king and some magic. And of course, the evil king is vanquished. The good king prevails. And and the boy always, uh, there's always a happy ending, just, just right. But the pictures of this little boy trying to make his way to the top of a castle in one big giant leap. And he can't do it, but he kind of gets around the stipulation of the king that he jumped to the top of the castle because the king never really said it had to be in one leap, so he does it step by step. I I was very, very fond of that when I was young. There are many types of literacy within the realms of education, and it's important that our children are taught to be literate in all areas. One of the most dynamic divisions of literacy is in science. We're in studio today with Dwayne Merrill, a physics professor here at BYU. Welcome, Dwayne. Thank you. Dwayne, tell us what is scientific literacy? Well, that's a big question. I think the first one I think that comes to mind is that science is self-correcting. I think a science literacy that people don't realize is, is that when we have an idea, and it might be the best idea that's ever been there, when there's better information than in science we change. It's not a political process. It's nothing. It's just when you understand something at a certain level that knowledge changes and if something better comes along and we have to accept it, we change and move with that. So I think that's one of the big keys of science literacy is that it's it's self-correcting. That, I think, is such a wonderful way to look at it because it, it's a skill. It's an element of how we look at the world around us. And I think most of us have experienced that where we've seen a scientific discovery and we believe it's one way and then an article comes out and we see it a completely different way. And being able to look at the world in that way is is a very significant literacy to allow us to see things kind of in a broader context. So that skill, I think, not only essential for science, but essential for a lot of life in, in many ways. But why do you think it's important that we understand that element and kind of break it apart from all of the other processes that might go into scientific discovery or scientific literacies? Well, after you after we realize that we're just trying to figure it out, and that's what scientists do, you know, they're they're trying to figure out the order and how things happen, and, and just trying to figure out how all these things. When it comes down to those, there's only a hundred of those elements 
that we can deal with. And we talk about that's all there is. And they all interact and they all work with each other in different patterns and we recognize them. That's one way. And we think about things like uh, energy and how energy is conserved. And we think about what does that mean? You know, I, I, I watch an electric car get plugged in in the place where I park here at BYU and I drive in with my gas-powered car. And if those two cars weigh the same, they take the same amount of energy to drive the same path every day. There's no different in the amounts of energy that has to be produced. But they're fundamentally different outcomes of which energy that I use. But the amount of energy didn't change. It has to be the same. And so I think about the world we live in now and how that information travels on waves. That's what we're doing on this radio station. Yep. You know, we've got some electrons vibrating and they're sitting out on a wave at the speed of light across the world, across the universe, and we talk to each other that way. And all of those literacies, I think, when you start seeing them, they become this uh, amazing, fun puzzle to look at that I can wonder, how does that work and how does that not work? I was in... Canada a few years ago, and my father-in-law called me on the phone, and I answered it, and he goes, Dwayne, you're in Canada. How did you answer this phone? And I thought, yeah. How did a cell phone in Castledale, Utah, find me in Edmonton, Canada? You know, and it did it on a little wave, a little electromagnetic wave, went all over the place and came to me. And so, in the end, I think the literacies that we're talking about here, the ability to self-correct, the ability to understand there's very basic principles that everything works with and that science is just trying to find the order to it all. Looking at it that way, that science is just about trying to find the order and trying to find the structure of it, I think kind of opens my eyes to a new way of looking at all of this. Because I think a lot of times people, when they think about scientific literacies, they think about the complexities of it, particularly if you felt challenged by science in any way. I think there's a lot of us that would say, you know, oh, this is too complex, but it really is about the simplicity of it. So how do we as parents or concerned adults kind of get back to that simplicity and help our children develop some of these fundamental, important scientific literacies? I think a lot of it relies on the fact that we need our teachers to do that too. You know, we need to make sure the science is not just a collection of facts that are memorized and give back. The science is absolutely a problem-solving problem solving problem, I guess is what you'd call it. You're trying to solve problems. And when we do that, they make such big differences in our life. I was looking at my son this weekend uh, when he was like, 11 years old, he read a book called Hatchet, and he had to have a hatchet when it was over. I mean, he I thought we were buying it for his scouts, but no, he was buying a hatchet. He read that book, Hatchet, and that hatchet meant everything to the boy in that story. And I think that sometimes we forget that great questions can drive curiosity, can make people want to understand something. And that's a great question's better than What's the definition of this definition of this term? Focusing on questions to me resonates very well because that's as as a teacher and as an instructor, that's that's what I do is I love to look at these questions. So are there certain ways that you ask questions in science or are there certain ways we think about questions in science that's that is important for us to understand as part of our scientific literacies? 
Yeah, I one of my favorite stories I read in the last few years was of a kindergarten teacher that had a cup of water on her table, and her students came back on Monday and realized that something had drank the water. And now, over a period of weeks, the kids every Friday would try to decide why, where was the water going. And they would come up with things like, we think a mouse is drinking it. And the teacher would say, well, instead of telling them about evaporation, which was actually causing it, she would say, how are we going to test to see if it's a mouse? And they would, like, sprinkle flour around it to see if any mouse tracks come through it. They'd come back and find out there wasn't a mouse drinking the water. And so the next week they had brainstorm a whole new idea of how they could find out what was going in the water. They decided that bugs must be drinking it. So they put a mesh over the top of it, and the mesh nothing, no bugs got in and nothing happened. And just a series of questions that just kept rolling with these kindergarten kids. In the end, they finally put a piece of plastic over the top of it and nothing changed that week. And then the teacher was ready to teach them about a process called evaporation. Those types of wonderful connections that we make through science, through these beautiful lessons and approaches to it, really breaks it down and helps us participate in those scientific literacies. As you've described a lot of of your experiences here, you talk about that hands-on aspect, that participation aspect. So why do you think that piece is particularly important in developing scientific literacies? Last year, I was working with a group of elementary teachers in STEM fields, and they were phenomenal teachers. They were some of the joys of my life was the, the months I spent with these teachers trying to say, how do you ask good questions? And one teacher, Jared Broadbent's his name, after the class was over, he handed me a three-by-five card that I'd ask him to write some thoughts of the class. And he said that in his fifth-grade classroom that science had now become the favorite class over P.E., and I thought, we have done something, you know. Something has happened that was good because if I remember when I was in fifth grade and the teachers would just leave us out to PE, they never brought us back if we could stay there longer because that was probably the place we made the less problems in the class. But that ability to ask that good question can empower a student and it also makes teachers become more than information. It makes them be collaborators in learning. It lets them help ask more questions of the students. And maybe in a circular fashion, the new question comes out of the old question, and all of a sudden you're spiraling through your curriculum, and nobody really knows they're going there. But in the end, they're doing it with such great passion, and they actually develop a love for what they're learning. You're describing for me what I would envision as being kind of the ideal conditions for developing scientific literacies. And I I would truly hope that there are all those teachers out there who would develop those conditions to help that happen. But I also think that there's some ways we could develop those conditions kind of at home, too, if it's not happening in the schools that allow us as parents and concerned adults to engage with these kinds of activities and questions and allowing those questions to be a part of our our lives in a fundamental way. Is there an approach that you would recommend in that vein to help parents develop these kinds of activities? One of the things that I learned to do as I was teaching high school was when we would have a project, maybe it was they had to package an egg to shoot it into the wall at an extremely high speed. 
I would send that home weeks before the project was due, and then I would tell the student, you can bring everybody's. You can bring your little brother's project. You can bring your dad's. You can bring your mother's. You can bring your grandpa's. You can bring anybody's you want, and here's the deal. You can have the best score about whoever did it. And so maybe the little brother was the best at it and maybe did something really simple. And so as a teacher, I think what I could do is I could change the way that I looked at getting help at home. And I would ask them to get anybody's help, give anybody's input. And the interesting thing was, was parents and grandparents and mothers and fathers and and uncles would show up to the school on the day we did those things to watch how all of their creations did. Now, if I can do that as a as a teacher, I'm sure we can do that as parents, you know. But maybe it's the process has to be thought through. You know, what good question can we ask and how are we going to do this? And what research am I willing to let them do, you know? Maybe making cookies isn't the place to do it when the flour and the sugar and everything goes all over the house. But on the other token, maybe it's not. Maybe the next great recipe is just sitting there and we didn't know about it because nobody tried it. That is a wonderful way to look at it. So I hope that we have more avenues of discovery going on in our schools and our homes to help kids be more engaged in their scientific literacies. Thank you so much, Dwayne. Thank you. Dwayne Merrill is a physics professor at BYU. Now, join me around the librarian's table as I talk with librarians from around Utah about children, books, and life at the library. I'm in studio with Petrina Garza and Fiong Yu, librarians from the Salt Lake County Library. And we're also joined by Heather Novotny, a school librarian from the McGillis School. They are here to chat about multilingual books. Let's chat a little bit about bilingual books. I think this is a fun new area where we're seeing a lot of books come in with dual languages, particularly here in the United States, we see mostly English Spanish, but I've actually seen a lot of other ones that come with other languages. So tell us a little bit about these kinds of books, um, maybe the scope of them, and then what, how do you use them and maybe give us some examples. So, so what do these books look like? Well, they can look like lots of things, right? Like you mentioned, Spanish language is pretty hot topic in the U.S. I think it's one of, what is it, the second highest spoken language in our country? I believe we'll have to check that fact. But, you know, there's so many um, Spanish speakers in the U.S. from all different places, all different Latin American countries or from Spain or other places that speak Spanish. And there's such a wide availability of books available either you know, translated from Spanish or like a dual language edition, like you were talking about. And that's really great for, I see it kind of two sides of a coin, right? It's great for people who speak Spanish, native speakers who are learning English. And it's great for English speakers who don't know Spanish, who may, with their young kids or kids in school age learning Spanish, who want to, to learn Spanish as a second language. So there's just great opportunity to have those both both learning opportunities depending on kind of where you're at but that that would be I think in the public library where I'm at that's one thing I like to encourage our Spanish speakers to read both languages with their little ones especially if they're mostly just teaching them Spanish at home it's also important for them to become literate in Spanish and for the 
young kids, that's so important as well to have the opportunity to not just learn the language orally, but to be able to read it as well. What about the school library context? Yeah, so in my school library, I'm supporting our foreign language curriculum. So uh, in my school, I'm the school librarian at the McGill School, uh, and Hebrew is one of the languages that's spoken there. And um, we also uh, that's taught there. And we also teach Spanish. And so I purchase, uh, I collect both in Hebrew and, and Spanish. And I think what's so cool about, especially the Spanish English bilingual books is that there's an intergenerational quality to them. So if you, maybe you're the, um, the son or the grandson of native speakers and, but you could, you could check this bilingual book out and share it with your, your abuela, your grandma, your grandpa, and, um, and enjoy that kind of dual language experience together. So I think one of the coolest things about having um, multilingual books in your collection is that you're, um, you're supporting that family that ha- that uses two languages at home. And that's, um, that's a beautiful thing that you can accomplish with the library collection. Is that the same thing you see in your community? Yes. And I think not just books that are, um, well, there are some books that have a sprinkling of different languages, and I think that's really important to have so that the kids can kind of see their own backgrounds reflected too. So, for example, in my family, we speak Vietnamese, and my daughter loves to find books where she can identify a Vietnamese word, picture book, chapter book. It just is a sense of pride for her, but also, you know, that she's she's got a connection there and that it's it's visible, it's present, it's acknowledged, it's important to her. So examples, share with us some examples of books that you love in this category. Oh, there are lots. Go ahead. Yeah. Well, I have one here, and I it's not really a bilingual book. This is the memoir of Sylvia Acevedo, who's the um, CEO of the Girl Scouts. It's called Path to the Stars, My Journey from Girl Scout to Rocket Scientist. And I just thought of it for this particular topic because it was simultaneously published in Spanish. And the reason why she did that uh, on her website, she tells us that she wanted to make sure that there was a, a place for intergenerational families um, to encounter the book. So maybe the children speak English fluently and they would want to read it in English, but the the parents and the grandparents would want to read it in Spanish. And it's a really lovely sort of old-fashioned story about uh, growing up in a, in a small town and joining the Girl Scouts and, and finding yourself and finding um, skills and new abilities, how to plan, how to, you know, how to save up and, and achieve a goal and how to study. And then she went on to become a, um, a rocket scientist for NASA and JPL. So it's a, it's a nice um, immigrant story about, well, she's not an immigrant. She's, she was born in the U S as were her, her parents or one of her parents, but it's a nice story of, of growing up and, um, and realizing your dreams. And I love that she made it available in, in one of her two native languages so that, so that um, families who speak um, Spanish at home, can share the book with their um, English-speaking children. Very nice. That's awesome. Thanks, Heather. I'll just share one that I recently found. It's called The Water Walker, and it's written and illustrated by Joanne Robertson. It's about an Ojibwe lady from the... Where is she from? From outside of Ontario is where she currently lives. And she... And some friends started walking around the world to really promote like water comfort conservation and being able to not waste water and and really try to highlight the issue of that we need to really be more, you know, what is it? Be more 
responsible in our use of water throughout the world. And it was really fascinating because it also features different words in the native Ojibwe language. I'm not sure if I pronounced that correctly. And then at the back of the book, there are there's a little glossary to explain the different meanings of the words. So something like that is might be really beyond the experience of, of most kids, maybe whether they're at school or visiting the public library. So something that features a language that they might not have ever even heard of can really be beneficial to help them do that expanding of their horizons. So. I love it. So quickly, I just wanted to add a few titles that I really enjoy that are multilingual. Um, one that's near and dear to me is Inside Out and Back Again by Tan Hao Lai. For me, it's just super important because my family's from Vietnam. And I love that there are different words and the names of people from Vietnam that have the same names as my relatives. And I think that's just been amazing for my family. Um, the Poet X, I think, is really a good one because it's mostly in English, but um, the poet there, um, the main character, she does share quite a few um, of her poems in Spanish. Ladies, you're amazing. You have such depths of knowledge. I appreciate it so much. Thank you so much for coming and sharing all your favorites and helping us to, to see the scope of multilingual books. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I'd like to thank Petrina, Fiong, and Heather for joining me around the librarian's table. We've had a great show today. We talked with Amy Webb about the importance of disability advocacy. Then we chatted with Lauren Tarshish about her book series, I Survived. Our last interview was with Dwayne Merrill, and we discussed scientific literacy. If you missed any of today's show, or if you want to listen to it again, you can find it on the BYU Radio app or at byuradio.org, as well as on most podcast apps and websites. If you want to know more about what we do here at Worlds Awaiting, feel free to follow our Instagram at Worlds Awaiting. This has been a production of BYU Radio. Our producer is Cole Wissinger, our student production assistant is Sarah Byington, and our technical advisor is Braden Flint. I'm Rachel Wadham, looking forward to the worlds that are waiting next week. Thank you for exploring with us. Mm-hmm.